Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us now is retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General Jim Clapper, the former director of national intelligence. He ranks among the nation's most distinguished intelligence officers, starting his career by enlisting in the United States Marine Corps as a reservist before being commissioned into the United States Air Force in 1963 as a signals intelligence officer, flying 73 combat support missions aboard EC-47 aircraft during the Vietnam War. During the first Gulf War, he was the chief of Air Force Intelligence, then went on to lead the Defense Intelligence Agency, retiring from active duty in 1995. Then he became the director of the newly formed National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, then served as the Undersecretary of Defense for Intelligence before starting a highly eventful seven-year tour as the DNI. After a lifetime of service to the nation, he retired from his post in January 2017, and he is also the author of a great book that I commend, Facts and Fears, Lessons from a Lifetime in Intelligence. General Clapper, it's an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Well, thanks very much for having me. Absolute pleasure. This conversation is sponsored by General Atomics Aeronautical Systems and devoted to the memory of one of the nation's greatest national security strategists, Andy Marshall, the former director of the Pentagon's Office of Net Assessment. And our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. And General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage. Sir, uh, it's, it's a real pleasure uh, having you on. Uh, you know, followed your career for a very long time. Uh, and we have been hearing on this program uh, from uh, operators and, and business leaders who uh, on, on strategy. And as a career intelligence officer, I wanted to get your sense on what the right role of intelligence is in making strategy, and then how you use strategy in turn to build the intelligence capabilities the nation needs for not just its future challenges, but also its current challenges. Well, following the uh, maxim that uh, intelligence and policy are you know, separate but related endeavors and intelligence supports policy, doesn't make it. I think you need to make, we need to make the distinction between intelligence policy, that, that is policy which governs intelligence institutionally as opposed to the broader policy, so national, national policy. So just to make those two distinctions or that distinction in, in uh, uh, to, in the interest of focusing your question. So if you're speaking, if you're asking me about policy governing intelligence institutionally, uh, I can, you know, I can speak to that. As far as national policy, well, that's, uh, you know, big as all outdoors. So, but I do think that distinction is important. Um, well, I mean, from, so how do you see this from sort of a, a, a narrower intelligence perspective, right? Because there is this sense that we need to think and act strategically um, there is a whole bunch of other things I want to ask you in terms of what constitutes good strategy and bad strategy, but, but ultimately what's the right way, um, to look at it? Because oftentimes you're the watchman, you point out to policy and political leaders, what the challenges are. It's up to them to follow it or not. It's a point you make in your book. And all too often we find ourselves sometimes having missed what you guys are really saying about things that are important. And then it only becomes an issue later or if there's a political problem, right? Everybody remembers the failure. Nobody remembers the thousand private successes. 
Well, that's, that's true. And, and it's very difficult to, uh, for example, um, point out, let alone talk about, because often it's classified, uh, terrorist plots thwarted. Um, you know, we, the intelligence community uh, rarely, if ever, gets credit for, uh, uh, for something like that. And, we don't, and you know, we, the intelligence community is supposed to bat a thousand. Uh, and when you miss one, uh, it's uh, normally visible and demonstrable and, uh, and people are quick, are, are quick to criticize. I think on the, on the bigger issue of policy, um, the intelligence community in, in uh, an ideal sense is supposed to be driven by what policymakers want in terms of requirements. That is supposed to govern the allocation of resources and the focus of the intelligence community is what policymakers rank and prioritize as important. Now the intelligence community can, can and does advise, suggest, recommend, but in the end, it is the policymaker uh, community led by policymaker number one, the president, that determines what the national policy is, the national strategy is, and that in turn should drive, influence, shape, and meld what the intelligence community does in support of that policy or strategy. I, I remember uh, uh, interviewing one of your colleagues, Bob Cardillo. He was at uh, DIA at the time, the day that the um, uh, Russians invaded uh, Georgia. And at the time, people were saying, oh, my God, this is this is such a surprise and we didn't know. And, and Bob was very pointed in saying, well, we we told people what was going on. What they decided to do with that information is a little bit uh, outside, you know, the purview of this conversation. That's a very um, good point, uh, because uh, not to sound overly defensive, but if the intelligence community tees up intelligence and for whatever reason, policymaker chooses to uh, ignore it which is the policymaker's prerogative. Uh, and then something goes bad, goes south. Uh, is that an intelligence failure uh, or not? And so th there is always this, uh, this relationship uh, and there's some degree of friction in it between intelligence and, and, and the policy world. Uh, and so when events happen, appear, uh, appear to happen suddenly, Arab Spring comes to mind as, as a case in point. Uh, it wasn't that the intelligence community was ignorant of the conditions that gave rise to it and had reported that, but the intelligence community did not um, uh, foretell of a, a fruit vendor uh, immolating himself. And then that, uh, set off a firestorm, no pun intended, in the in the Mideast. So I think there needs to be the distinction made between sort of uh, strategic uh, foresight and tactical foresight, the latter of which is is very, very difficult. Um, uh, um, I, I would commend to everybody to look at the uh, strategic foresight document, actually, that you were very proud of. Uh, at uh, ODNI releasing it every year in terms of what are what are the threats and how to think about them on a regular uh, basis, just like the CIA fact book still remains one of the most extraordinary documents, uh, 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 you know, sort of a compendium of knowledge. You're a second generation intelligence officer and spent a lifetime in, in the craft at an intersection of technology and intelligence. You could argue at its most exciting and extraordinary period 
and you've been at this game since the early 1960s. How has intelligence changed and how hasn't it changed over the course of your long career? Well, I think uh, technology is one of, um, I would say, about five factors that, as I look back, have affected uh, change in the U.S. intelligence community. Um, obviously, adversary behaviors and, and, and capabilities. Our, our intelligence failures uh, have certainly shaped um, the behavior of the intelligence community and the ensuing legislation. So if you think of Pearl Harbor uh, and the National Security Act, you think of 9-11 and the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, which among other things established the position of DNI, obviously those things have you know, a huge in institutional impact on the intelligence community and certainly funding. You know, the Congress literally gets a vote every, if they get around to appropriations. The Congress um, determines how much money the intelligence community gets in great detail and how many people the intelligence community gets and where those people are allocated. So all those things affect change in the intelligence community. But I think that the, the one in my mind that has had most impact operationally on the performance of the intelligence community is technology. And so I would cite, for example, uh, the onset of the internet and how profoundly that changed uh, the behavior, the operations and the capabilities of, of the intelligence community, the internet and related technology. The ability of, uh, to do overhead reconnaissance, uh, the ability to uh, have uh, unmanned aerial vehicles or RPVs, remotely piloted vehicles that can stare and, and generate persistence way beyond a land platform. So those just, and, and the, of course, tremendous ability to move data uh, quickly and in huge volumes, a capability that did not exist when I was a young pup in the intelligence community. And so uh, of all the uh, influencers uh, that have changed intelligence, I, I would point to technology and the, some of the examples I cited as, as the most profound. And, and what has not changed in the business as far well, as you're concerned? The basic functions of intel, you know, the basic purpose, you know, why do we do intelligence in the first place? Well, I've always liked Dr. Mark Lowenthal's formulation. And in the end, the reason we do intelligence is to reduce uncertainty for a decision maker, whether the decision maker is in the Oval Office or if I can stretch the metaphor in an Oval Foxhole. And the, uh, the objective is to reduce risk uh, and uh, to give a decision maker, policymaker, command, military commander, whoever it is, more insight, not perfect insight, but more insight into uh, the support uh, decision-making. That has not changed. I think the functions of intelligence haven't changed. I think, and one of the things that kept me in the intelligence profession for so long was the caliber of the people that are attracted to it. Um, so those things I, I think are unchanged. The maximum, maximum of truth to power has been a constant in the intelligence community for as long as I can remember. So those are sort of some basics that, that I believe have not changed. You're a cold warrior who practiced the craft at the absolute height of the confrontation with the Soviet Union uh, that we today sometimes forget was remarkably aggressively waged 
given the thermonuclear stakes uh, of, of the game. And, and there's this sense that we're obviously uh, into now a, another era of great power competition, this time uh, with the Chinese, uh, right? We're still at the game with the Russians. It's, it's, it's difficult to operate in Russia. It's difficult to operate in China. Uh, Tony and Joanna Mendez uh, have written the Moscow Rules, uh, which I also commend to our audience that seeks to teach Cold War lessons to a new generation uh, of uh, intelligence operators who are going to be operating in a contested environment. Their message is that it's, it's possible. What are the lessons uh, from the Cold War that you think are most valuable and applicable today as the nation prepares uh, for uh, China that is a very, very different power and competitor than the Soviet Union was indeed as, as modern Russia is, is, is different in some respects uh, from from the Soviet Union. Well, I think it's useful here uh, to um, con contrast the era of the Cold War with what we confront now. And I, I've often said I almost find myself longing for the halcyon days of the Cold War, where we had one major adversary um, whom we understood pretty well and who was pretty predictable. And all other threats or challenges were subsumed by uh, our ability. And that was, that was our main focus and from an intelligence perspective. And any other challenges or problems were, were subsumed by our ability to uh, monitor, surveil, and, un and understand uh, the Soviet Union. So even as we confront a, an aggressive, dynamic, and capable, modernized China, we don't get a pass on the, all the other threats that have proliferated since the demise of the bipolar world. And so that's the, that's the difference. Now there are all kinds of, um, I think, tradecraft um, techniques, sources, methods that we use successfully against the Soviet Union, which you can't go into, that certainly apply, would apply with China, which is also an equally denied area and an equally tough intelligence target, uh, particularly the, for anyone we have on the ground in China. So all those lessons uh, aided and abetted by you know, the huge improvements and the huge leaps in technology, uh, I think we will certainly draw on as, as we confront an assertive China. Um, I, I wanna get to um, the technological capabilities and as well as the human capital questions in, in, in a little bit, but H.R. McMaster was on the program last, last year and expressed his concern that the United States really is uh, sadly too often uh, characterized by strategic hubris, um, that the thinking we can solve sort of any problem and, and sometimes failing to do the basic work of understanding its adversaries and their motivations as clearly as we need to. You've spent a lifetime studying all of our adversaries. What is it that we get right? What is it we get wrong and, and why? Why is it that we sometimes fail uh, to really, really, really understand our adversaries? Well, I think sometimes we have a tendency to worst case. You know, that's kind of the approach to be on the safe side. That's the approach the intelligence community will take will be to worst case situations. And we probably, you know, the benefit of, of 2020 hindsight, we probably magnified the, uh, the threat and the, and the strength of the Soviet Union more than it was, was actually the case. And I, 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 my 
intuition, and that's all it is, tells me that we're probably doing falling into the same trap with China. We have a tendency to paint China today as 10 feet tall. Uh, yes, they're capable. Their economy is going to overtake ours as the largest in the world. They have a very impressive uh, and, and disturbing military modernization program. They become very assertive uh, internationally, but they're not 10 feet tall. They have some weaknesses, notably demographics, uh, and, and um, I, you know, the repression in China, which I think is going to work against them. So I think if there's a, a lesson to be drawn here is, is we have a tendency, uh, an understandable one, I think, perhaps to magnify the adversary's capabilities and strengths more than they actually are. Do you think we understand China as well as we need to understand it in terms of its motivation, structure, decision-making? Uh, as you said, right, I mean, some massive demographic challenges which are on their face. I agree with you that the repression is going to end up backfiring. Indeed, if, if you were the bright young Jack Ma, uh, why, why would you go back to China? You could end up in jail. China made progress by having this hybrid model, whereas she thinks he's got to crack down more. But at a fundamental level, do you think we understand China as clearly as we need to understand it? And that that understanding is also spread across our senior decision makers. Well, it's always a safe statement to, to, that we don't understand country X as well as we should, which is, is, is always true. Uh, you know, we can always uh, delve more into China. I, I, I have my own views on that. I don't pretend profess to be a Chinese expert, but I think, I think we have a tendency to overlook what really impels the Chinese leadership um, and that is uh, uh, fundamentally control of the population. And I think that's what motivates a lot of other things they do, even externally, um, uh, by appealing to uh, the Chinese feelings about the so-called 100 years of, of humiliation as a way of galvanizing loyalty and patriotism and nationalism on the part of the population. So when they make these exorbitant claims about the South China Sea or are aggressive about in, in uh, moves towards Taiwan or things they've done in Hong Kong. I think a lot of it is actually uh, motivated by a sense of insecurity and inferiority based prompted by the 100 years of humiliation. And they use that as a way of, as I say, galvanizing uh, patriotic feelings among the population. And I just think it's a good, a, a, a good idea to, to keep that in mind uh, as we uh, try to figure out how to deal with China. How, you know, we, we developed um, exceptional intelligence and geospatial capabilities. Anybody who knows you knows how passionate you are about geospatial intelligence. Uh, for the war on terror, for Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, fusing extraordinary amounts of data, as you mentioned, being able to, to track, to target, uh, to either apprehend or kill individuals literally anywhere. I mean, you guys literally were tacking, tracking thousands of people, uh, if you will, thousands of needles in countless haystacks and, and still managing to do it relatively effectively. Um, there are those who say that the capabilities from the last war will not be relevant for the next one. What do you think are the capabilities that we developed over the last two decades that you think are actually very relevant to the great power game? Well, just uh, you mentioned geospatial intelligence. I used to say when I was director of uh, 
NGA was that, you know, everybody and everything has to be someplace. And so that is, uh, whether, and that's true whether you're tracking terrorists or proliferators or human traffickers or, what, or military formations, military people, um, uh, you know, the, the same is true. So your ability to geolocate, find and identify and, uh, and locate specifically things and people is a valuable tool, no matter what the problem. Uh, we happen to apply it to a fairly well with, with uh, in counterterrorism, but the techniques, the tradecraft apply regardless of the target, I think. Do you know, Bob Neller, uh, former commandant in the Marine Corps, raised eyebrows when he said that he thought America had been in war in cyberspace against China and Russia for a decade. This was a few years ago, as you know. Um, you're a veteran of the truest sense on the front line since 1963. You were born at the start of what was the last real war where enemy capitals had to be seized to, to, vanquish, uh, to vanquish them. But wars have become very different over the decades, and China and Russia have become hybrid actors that blur the line between intelligence, malicious activity, direct action, gray zone. Are we thinking the right way about conflict, what it is, and how it will be fought at a fundamental level, do you think? Well, I think people, uh, I mean, those that are... Uh concerned about, about these kind of issues uh, do, do understand that the, the changing nature of, of warfare. And what is, is kind of insidious about it is the traditional hallmarks of the initiation of war, which are kinetic and physical, uh, are no longer that way. They, you know, we can't necessarily see, feel, or touch uh, a cyber attack. And, and the other problem we've had uh, is trying to define what exactly is or isn't an act of war in the cyber domain. Um, and those are just uh, issues that, you know, every administration has wrestled with it since the onset of, of, uh, of, of the cyber domain itself. Um, so I think people understand it. It's, uh, you know, deciding what to do about it, that's, that's, that's another issue. How, how do you, what do you think is that line, right? On this program, we've heard from Admiral Rogers. We've heard from Chris Inglis, who was uh, Mike's deputy uh, at uh, NSA. Um, we've uh, heard from uh, a number of other experts on, you know, where they think that line lies uh, between what is legitimate intelligence collection and what is causes belli. You know, after solar winds, you know, folks went to the barricades and said, oh, this is an act of war. We have to respond. Whereas career intelligence professionals were like, nah, you know, not not so fast. Where where do you think that line is developing and evolving? Well, I think right? in an in intelligence context, the line is, I think, fairly clear. If you are passively collecting, um, you know, espionage, spying. Uh, I think it's generally recognized that that is a permissible activity. Um, you, know, you can defend against it and all that. I think the line, though, is crossed when a cyber uh, activity results in disruption or destruction or the manipulation or deletion of data. And that, to me, is, is crossing a line between what I think is 
generally recognized internationally as a permissible activity, which is espionage. Um, you know, the, but it's but it's passive and doesn't cause any particular harm other than whatever harm accrues from losing, you know, losing the information. Right. Or, or, or an adversary gaining access to the information, I should say, not losing it. So to, to me, that's, that, that's a red line. Now, after that, what, what is actually an act of war? I could argue that, uh, you know, see, closing down a pipeline that uh, affected the East Coast of the United States or effect, uh, did a closing down a meat pot processing plant that uh, caused food shortages, for intelligence, it, I think it's a fairly simple, uh, a defined line. Passive collection, espionage, I think it's generally recognized as permissible. And I suspect that discussion may have come up during the summit between Putin and, and President Biden. But I think what the line that's crossed is when there is disruption, uh, even destruction, uh, manipulation or deletion of data. Uh, and then the, that raises the specter of what exactly within that context is an act of war. And we've had trouble deciding that. And, and as you uh, mentioned, right, you could look at Colonial Pipeline or what happened with the meat packing uh, instance and consider those to be beyond what were normal intelligence gathering or Right, because oh, yeah, there's a sense that that those may have been actually nation state actor actions that were covered up by a ransomware um, cover. Yeah, that, that that's a further complication. So, um, you know, we can that we, the situation that Putin puts himself in is an activity which is attributable but deniable because uh, uh, purportedly uh, these uh, cyber assaults were done by criminals or hacktivists, not a nation state entity, which is a, uh, a nicety maybe, but the fact is they emanated from Russia. So if Russia acquiesces, if not acknowledges or even directs that kind of activity, even though it's actually carried out by a non-governmental non entity, is that a act of war by nation state? Well, that's where lawyers uh, have, you know, have a field day on, you know, trying to decide uh, these kind of issues. How, 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 I mean, I know that the president uh, had a conversation and, and as you're suggesting, right, these are now starting to get much closer to that line of what is impermissible or um, would be something that would uh, merit a response. What do you think are the right ways to deter our adversaries, given the overwhelming concern that time is not on our side, especially when it comes to the Chinese, right? I mean, that may or may not be as accurate, but there is this sense that we have a small window to get our crap uh, in, a, in a row, if, if you'll excuse the crassness. The difficulty in, in judging what to do by uh, a reaction and, and why there has in the past been reluctance to do a tit for tat. In other words, a, a cyber counter, uh, if, the, if we're attacked in the cyber realm and then we launch a counter attack, what will the counter, counter retaliation be? 
And unless you know what that's going to be, and unless you're confident that you can uh, withstand an attack and are resilient enough to recover, it makes, uh, it tempers a decision about doing a cyber for cyber uh, counterattack. So what we've resorted to traditionally have been sanctions. And as we've seen, sanctions have uh, had limited success in changing behavior. So that's the dilemma. Uh, if the policymaker, the president, so let's say, turns to, to the DNI and says, well, if we launch this attack, how will the adversary counter that attack? How will the adversary react? And if you don't know the answer to that, you're taking a big risk. How, you know, we're living in an extraordinary technological era, you know, as you, as you noted, um, that's made intelligence gathering both easier, but also driven us all to live in fishbowls, right? High, high resolution imagery, uh, overhead imagery now is so ubiquitous. I mean, you had killed for that early in your career, and we had to develop the U2, the SR, Corona, Keyhole, and any one of a number of other capabilities. And now, you know, state and local governments are using it to tax you for building a swimming pool in your backyard that doesn't have a permit. How do you, how do you recruit? How do you cover? How do you act in an utterly transparent world? I mean, how do you operate in a world that's tantamount to living in an ever clearer fishbowl where well, hiding becomes very, very, very difficult, if not impossible. What that creates, of course, or generates is greater and greater uh, transparency. And transparency is, is a two-edged sword. Uh, it's great when you're looking at adversaries. It's not so great when you're looking at ourselves. So, you know, every time you want to license a commercial imagery provider, which we should do, um, there are those who, uh, particularly in the military, concerned about operational security. You know, how, how revelatory are, is this capability going to be of our own U.S. military movements and operations? So like it or not, we live in a fishbowl. We live in a transparent world. Um, virtually everyone has uh, generated an electronic footprint, um, you know, Kids born today uh, almost immediately start generating an electronic footprint. And when, whenever you do that, you're actually giving up your privacy. So uh, I, what to do about it? I, I don't know. Uh, be aware of it is about all I can, I can suggest. Do you think that given the nature of the advances in technology, you know, as Snowden demonstrated, there are highly classified programs that exist, all of which are through oversight and international partnerships. And it's good for partner nations to help us and us to help them, uh, as you note uh, in, in your book. But the secrecy of it also then compounds and confounds the public and fuels the tinfoil hat crowd, ultimately. Does there need to be a different sort of discussion with the public about intelligence, intelligence gathering, data, all of this that can reassure a, a public that gets more worried probably than it should, although you know there are some who are very passionate about this uh, and it's exacerbated by lawmakers who are, who are trying to get their 15 minutes of mic time sometimes. 
Well, there's always been an aura of suspicion about um, the intelligence community uh, for as long as I, I'd been in it or was in it. Uh, and, you know, that's just human nature. Uh, people are, are automatically uh, or instinctively suspicious of those activities that are portrayed as, as uh, having to be secret. So whether it's intelligence or law enforcement activities that have to be secret, that automatically raises an aura of suspicion. I do think uh, the intelligence community needs to be more transparent and more open to generate um, you know, faith and trust and confidence on the part of the uh, public that what the intelligence community is doing is, is legal, legal, moral, and ethical. And of course, um, since we can't expose what the intelligence community does, uh, that's the reason for having um, the intelligence oversight committees who, who act or are supposed to act as proxies or surrogates for the American public. And on their behalf, watch uh, what the intelligence community is doing to ensure that in fact, it is legal, moral, and ethical. Um, I do think the intelligence community could do more to explain uh, what it does without compromising sources and methods. I, I pushed that uh, when I was uh, uh, director of national intelligence. And I think that needs to continue. I, I have advocated uh, with the intelligence transition team and, and with Everett Haynes herself, uh, the idea of having an outside the wire open source center, um, which would be the obverse of the way open source is treated in the intelligence community today, which is it is uh, seen as, used as a supplement or complement, spelled with an E, to classified activity. And I'm suggesting the obverse of that, where you have an open source producing, may sound like an oxymoron, producing unclassified intelligence for the benefit of the public, where the, pu the public could see value added to what the intelligence community does in that $85 billion a year investment that the American taxpayer makes in the intelligence community. So um, now having said that, the actual mechanics of being more transparent and exposing more is um, not trivial. And transparency, uh, which many people find very appealing, has a two-edged sword because adversaries go to school on that very same transparency. As, as we saw in the Snowden nightmare, not, not, not to bring back a, a facial tick or, uh, you know, headaches uh, on your part, right? There, there's a sense of, on the one hand, uh, from journalists and others that, well, the transparency is, is important, but that release it will plague us for a very long period of time, won't it? I mean, I mean, aren't secrets at some point finite, right? I mean, I always look at secrets a little bit like a nuclear reactor. It's a big gas tank and we have a lot of secrets, but it is relatively finite, right? At some point, your adversary doesn't have to read your mail. They've got a pretty good idea of where you're going and your capabilities, don't, don't you? I mean, isn't, isn't yes, this stuff decades long to recover? Intelligence particularly has a temporal dimension. By that, I mean something that's collected today uh, will have a different value tomorrow, next week, next month, uh, next year, or five years from now. There, there's no question about that. And the, uh, the, the, the tendency, of course, is to be protective and classify things, particularly when they're new, 
and we sometimes forget that as time goes on, uh, there's less need to protect uh, or to provide a cloak of secrecy. And that's, that, it just illustrates the complexity of this whole business of, of, of being more open and, and more transparent. Uh, I, I remember I started my career when I believe it was the Army declassified World War I rail because the rail spotter had died. The, the person who had helped Allied forces count German trains behind the lines had passed away. And so they, they disclosed the intelligence, which I thought was uh, terrific. Uh, and I still have a copy of that uh, somewhere. Um, let me ask, uh, you know, in any field, as, as you've uh, noted, but intelligence in particular depends on technology and extraordinary people. And I want to ask you a people uh, question. A, a very good uh, friend noted that cross-pollination is vital for, for any large organization, especially a bureaucracy. And, you know, we, we try to do that with political appointees, but, but too often those appointees are also from the system uh, that they're uh, overseeing. And he noted that DARPA is particularly successful because DARPA doesn't have anybody that's in DARPA, right? A program manager comes in, does new exciting things, leaves, you know, 10 years later may come back or a couple of years later, and eventually a program manager might become the, the director. And the, the example my friend gave is that in World War II, we were bringing in an extraordinary number of very interesting and different people into the intelligence business, including some international financiers and business folks who, who knew the Japanese and knew the Germans, knew the players, what their motivations were, thereby helping us step up, step up this game. Do we have the right flow of thoughtful, outside-the-box talent from other fields that keeps the intelligence community from, right, any, any organization, no matter how good, forms itself to the organization as a tendency of sort of hammering back into the floorboards, those who are completely out of the box. Do, are you, do you have the right flow of human talent coming through the organization? Well, I can't actually directly answer that anymore because I've, I've been away from it for four years. But I, I will say that the aforementioned examples that uh, you mentioned from World War II turned out to be largely white male. And you could argue that the intelligence community should not just look like America, it should look like the world. So I think that the extent that the intelligence community can be more inclusive um, and more, uh, more of an open tent, if you will, to bring in more diversity uh, into the intelligence process is, is better. Now I will, I will tell you that one thing that I think the intelligence community need, needs to do better at is bringing in new, uh, bright young people. And there are a lot, a lot of bright young people yet today want to serve in the intelligence community, but allowing them to go back to, to go to industry for a while with the understanding that they'll, they'll come back to the intelligence community. In other words, get that infusion of new technology and bring it back to the intelligence community. And the intelligence community should, should figure out ways to facilitate that flow back and forth between industries. So there's that dimension, and but I think what's really important is uh, the inclus inclusivity of the intelligence community to um, to be more, much more broad gauge than its its uh, distant history. You know, I mean, in, intelligence is uh, obviously a, a, a very complex uh, and, and challenging business. It is, it is very much a human business. It's an intuition business. 
Um, let me take you to the question of technology. Um, what, and, and, I, and I appreciate that this is a very loaded question and it may be impossible to, to answer, right? But what do you think are going to be the key enabling technologies and can they actually help, for example, in a big data standpoint, right? I mean, you, you, the intelligence community is one of the world's leaders uh, in, in, for example, big data, right? You're, you're able to find these needles in haystacks because you're able to collect uh, vast quantities of data, both the United States and through its international partners, process them and, and divine you know, glimmers of interesting stuff, right? That, then it raises another 20 questions you have to answer. But does, how, how, what are the enabling and the most important technologies? You know, for some folks, it's quantum, which will be game-changing, whether from a cryptography standpoint or a communication standpoint, our Chinese friends are working hard on that. What, what do you think are the technologies and the capabilities you think are going to be most important that if you were going to put it on a national list of investment priorities, that, that you would submit, whether to Avril Haines or, or anybody else, like, hey, you guys ought to be, sort of, we ought to be thinking about this. Well, I suspect you uh, have a very good answer to this question that may be highly classified. No, uh, our, I mean, there are some things that are, 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 I can't talk about that uh, um, are, are, I, I do know were in the works or were when I left. I think the whole, uh, the whole realm of uh, unmanned uh, vehicles, uh, whether in, uh, in whatever realm, in the air, ground, or, or sea, or undersea. Uh, the profound implications, both operationally for the military and for, for intelligence. So unmanned capability that, uh, uh, that can go places and be persistent way beyond uh, uh, the human uh, capabilities uh, is, a, is, has, has great potential for intelligence and operations as well. Artificial intelligence, which you know, everybody points to now as a panacea. And by the way, as I lived through in the history of intelligence and every time we got you know, the next big thing technologically, that was, gonna, that was gonna be an inflection point that was gonna revolutionize intelligence. And it never really, none of them ever really did. Um, it certainly changed it in an evolutionary way, but not in a revolutionary way. So the technologies you mentioned, certainly artificial intelligence and machine learning is important. The thing people forget though, is that the reason it's artificial intelligence is because a human has to design it and tell it and tell it this, this tool what to do. Right. And that is not a trivial task. And uh, both the Russians and the Chinese have recognized the potential of artificial intelligence, have, are putting big money into it, investing it. And of course, the, what they're generating out of that is all state, centrally state managed state control. We have a little different approach, more entrepreneurial, which I think over the long term is, is better. So the, the technologies that you mentioned, artificial intelligence and relatedly machine learning, um, quantum computing could have, you know, huge impact on, uh, on encryption and whether um, anyone who doesn't have quantum can, can encrypt or not. So these all have uh, potentially major implications for the future of intelligence. Um, one of the biggest uh, uh, implications 
for the security of, of, of the nation is, is what you uh, have discussed as truth decay. Um, which, um, you know, just talking about it sort of, you know, are, are we in a post-fact age? Uh, what happens in an era when facts don't matter? Um, I mean, when one of the reasons I ask this is that the military is a reflection of society. So if you have extremism in society, you'll have it in the military. And in fact, it can serve as a hothouse, uh, which is a topic we discussed with Mike Mullen. And if you look at half the nation now has the the pernicious nature of the lies, have convinced half the nation that there was a lot of fishy stuff going on in 2020, where it's evident from every study and state level uh, bipartisan investigation was was not fishy. And yet that can then be reflected in the workforce um, and affect and color a workforce, even though the intelligence workforce uh, just like the military tries to be apolitical and 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 play it fairly and and support wh- whoever is in is 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 in power. How do you fight mis and disinformation ultimately? And is well, this not an existential threat to the nation and to the republic? Well, it is. Uh, uh, in fact, I would assert that you can't have you can't have a functioning democracy if you can't agree on a basic set of facts. It, it just won't work. And that's why, why the uh, situation we're in today, in the atmospherics today, uh, this divisiveness and polarization and uh, you know, differing reality bubbles is so dangerous and pernicious for uh, uh, democracy. So it's to me uh, very worrisome and very dangerous. And I, I have to give credit here where credit's due to the, the phrase uh, truth decay, which I think is a very apt and clever characterization of, this, of what we're confronting. It comes from the Rand Corporation and some really good work they've done on, on truth decay and how to, um, how to combat it. There is no, in my, my mind at least, there is no silver bullet for how we get out of this. I will say that long-term, uh, what has to happen is education that, that should start no later than middle school, which includes some critical thinking. And when I trooped around before the pandemic and was traveling, uh, trooped around to colleges and universities and spoke to college students, I implored them, begged them, pled with them, uh, don't believe everything you see, read, and hear on the internet. And the importance of developing a method that is intellectually satisfactory to you for uh, determining what truth is. And uh, I mean, we can do all kinds of fact checking. I think the intelligence community has a role to play here in uh, calling out when, particularly when foreign uh, entities, particularly foreign nation states are interfering in our political processes, that should be publicized right away. Uh, there has to be an overwatch of social media, uh, you know, where things come from. Uh, but there is no silver bullet to this. And, and I, it, it, uh, I'll tell you, as a citizen, it, it really worries me because, as I said, fundamentally, if you can't agree on a common set of facts, then you, you just can't have it. I don't see how democracy can function. Do you think that, um, you know, some of our allies that have faced uh, the Russians, right, and, and from a tactics perspective or even a strategic perspective, right, the Soviet Union was trying to do the same thing throughout the Cold War. It's just that in 
the modern world, uh, presidential, you know, Adlai Stevenson, if I recall correctly, uh, you may remember this better than I do, not to date you, but as I recall, the Soviets had approached him and he turned around and reported him to the FBI. 2016, 2015 was when we had a presidential candidate that actually accepted the help and was happy to do it. Ultimately, do we need to do education? Um, do, 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 is the school system the answer to this? As some of our allies have done, I think Sweden, uh, Denmark, you know, have talked about, okay, how do you edu educate your public, give them the tools to determine fact from fiction. I have to say some of these nations have also used their intelligence services to try to debunk uh, these, these sorts of, of mistruths. Is, is that well, there, the answer? As I said, there is no one answer to this issue. Uh, there's been good work done on, on developing algorithms uh, of verbiage that can uh, indicate uh, falsehood um, or mis mis or disinformation. So we need, you know, need to pursue that sort of work. I think it needs to be um, more fact-checking. And I've suggested one of the functions of this aforementioned be outside the wire open source center, one of their functions could be to serve as the IC's fact checker. Um, I think education in the schools, as I said earlier, not uh, starting no later than middle school and teach middle school and high school kids critical thinking, train them to question uh, what they see, read and hear and to develop their own ways of, of corroborating uh, what what they're exposed to, so there there's no one thing that's 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 uh, that's going to cure this. It just isn't. But it, we're going to be in a bad way if we don't. Let me um, ask you a question. We ask everybody uh, toward the end of these conversations, which is, in in your view and in your long experience, what are successful, what are examples of successful strategy worth emulating? And what are examples of just bad strategy that should serve as sort of everlasting cautionary tales? Well, one I lived through, of course, was, was, was Vietnam. And uh, we really didn't have a very clear strategy there. Um, it was body count. That was uh, about all I, that I could tell when I served there in the, in the early, in the 65 and 66. My second tour was different, a different proposition, but to me, we didn't have a very clear objective of what we're trying to do. You know, it was all the uh, the ghosts of the domino theory and Vietnam falls, Seoul, Cambodia, Seoul, Laos, et cetera, et cetera, which is really not true. So, again, it's, if you're going to insert military force, have a very, very specific objective. And when that objective is achieved, troops go home. That's a and, lesson, I think. And, and what about good strategy, right? I mean, so what's an example in your mind of a very, very successful strategy that should serve to folks as, you know, hey, here's a, here's a smart way of doing something big? Well, I think the, uh, our strategy uh, post-World War II in Europe was uh, eminently successful. And yeah, we had we stayed there for a long time. And but when you look at at, at Germany and, and Japan, uh, the strategy we have followed in in the Republic of Korea or the Korean Peninsula, I think you know, and have generated uh, economic powerhouses 
uh, and strong allies. So I would point to that as, you know, very successful uh, strategies. Uh, the Atlantic Alliance, NATO, uh, our, uh, as, as out, out, outgrowth of that, I think have been uh, eminently successful. Um, let me uh, take you to uh, as a, as an airplane guy. I feel like I have to ask you this as a as a, as an airman. Um, you uh, were on EC forty sevens, which is uh, anybody who knows me knows the DC three uh, and the C forty seven are among my favorite air, air, air aircraft. What on earth was it like to fly that mission on an airplane that did not fly particularly high, did not fly particularly fast? That people had a propensity to shoot at, um, no air conditioning, right? You get on a modern airplane and it's comfortable. It's got a coffee maker. You were much more, you know, lasting hearing damage probably, right? I mean, anybody who knows you knows that you've, uh, you know, got hearing aids that you can use to great effect in meetings to tune people out. But uh, what was that mission like? Well, just to, to, just to make Sure, uh, there's understanding about what I, I did and didn't do. I, I commanded a, uh, a back-end detachment of about 100 airmen who were uh, Morse intercept operators or linguists. And we flew on the back-end of the EC-47 uh, doing the actual uh, signal intelligence uh, collection mission, which really was centered on direction finding, trying to locate, in this case, North Vietnamese Army transmitters that were uh, in Laos. And so I flew, as a part of that operation, I flew on the back end of these uh, venerable old DC-3s, which were designated EC-47s. Because of the weight of the uh, intercept equipment on the back end, um, the center of gravity of that air aircraft was about 50 yards off the tail. And we all used to listen very carefully uh, for engine, the two engines on that airplane. And if one of them started coughing, that was kind of scary because if you lost an engine with that, with the weight distribution on that uh, aircraft, it assumed the aerodynamic characteristics of the brick. It wasn't insulated. And uh, so I spent over 600 hours in that airplane. And that was the start of my uh, hearing difficulties because the plane was uninsulated. You couldn't fly more than 10,000 feet because it wasn't pressurized. And so it was, uh, in a, I don't know, it, it cruised at about maybe 200 knots, 220 knots, something like that. So it's a low flying, slow moving, old airplane. And it was, uh, uh, it was pretty hairy, to be honest. Um, I, I think a modern generation of, uh, of airmen should be thankful that they're not exactly going into combat in anything. Like uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, let, let me ask you one, one last uh, question, actually. Um, you know, there, there are many lessons from, uh, from the Snowden affair um, and, and the other breaches uh, that, that we've had, the Manning breach uh, being, being one of them. Um, the, there was an enormous debate, right? I mean, everything takes its course for its own reasons. After 9-11, there was a, a concern that, that the right dots were not being connected, that too many things were siloed and compartmentalized. And I remember having this conversation with folks uh, from the intelligence community, whether it made sense to break these barriers down, right? That at some point, would you not regret it if somebody decided to abscond with uh, information? 
um, and and not necessarily downloading it on thumb drives, right? I mean, you could you know be aware of these programs and and discuss them, right? I mean, you don't have to necessarily give the slide deck on Prism to somebody. You could explain it to a reporter, uh, for 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 example. What's the right balance of openness, compartmentalization? Um, and then good old fashioned vetting, right? I mean, in every single one of these cases, sir, we, we find we didn't vet somebody who we should have vetted, right? Whether it was a Hansen, whether it was an Eric Snowden, whether it's, uh, you know, the walkers, w what's the right approach to getting this right? Well, of, what of we've, what we've done, uh, I mean, I, I'm not sure I can actually answer that, that, uh, that's a tough question. Uh, I think there needs to be a, a, a mix of one being more trying to be transparent about what we're doing. And that, that certainly was the case with Snowden. Had we had the government at the time uh, explained the need for uh, what he found to be an abuse or allegedly found to be an abuse, uh, and that is the so-called domestic surveillance program. Had we been, uh, the government been open about that at the outset, say 2002, to explain the reason for that program was to connect the dots between uh, a, a, a correspondent, a communicant located overseas who is communicating with someone in, in the United States plotting an attack against the United States. So that's why, why the, the program was conceived in the first place. Had we been, had not been so secretive about it and explained the need to the, to the American public and the Congress uh, I don't think people would have gotten any more excited about the metadata program than they would about the fact that the FBI maintains hundreds of millions of, of fingerprint files on innocent Americans. But people know that, they understand how it's used and why it's used. So that's an argument for more transparency. On the other side is uh, how to safeguard against the insider threat. And the system that the uh, intelligence community is going to is one of continuous evaluation where instead of doing periodic checks, background investigations, it, it runs uh, continuously. Uh, so that it, it, it is hoped or thought would present, would prevent uh, uh, hemorrhages like we had with uh, Snowden and, and, and Manning. Now, there, there's no perfect solution here because you're dealing with human beings and all the complexities of human psychology. Uh, so continuous evaluation, that's, that's uh, I think, a useful tool. But I also worry about um, millennials, but particularly, who are going to think, you know, this, there's too much big brother here. I don't want to work in the intelligence community. So you have this uh, challenge of balancing the contraven contravening needs of uh, security and preventing hemorrhages of information, classified information, but at the same time, uh, giving some modicum of privacy to employees. So there's no simple answer to the, the tough question you asked. When, when it comes to strategic foresight, what are the key elements that, that go into that, right? There is a um, because oftentimes we find, uh, right, uh, the, the Soviet example is, is one of them, right? There was this, there was a lot of debate, even at the very end of the Cold War, would the Soviet Union continue or would it collapse? And I think everybody was shocked at the rapidity of its collapse, right? I mean, the whole thing became unhinged uh, remarkably quickly. Um, what, what, are, what are some of the keys to getting that 
arc right for the at, at a strategic level about where we're going? Because often that intelligence is not the classified intelligence, is it? What what are the the necessary ways of looking for things that will actually be the biggest needle movers, some of which are actually remarkably public, right? I mean, I remember I was in a senior intelligence officer's uh, office for a, a backgrounder uh, when CC uh, took power. And there was a little bit of, wow, you know, that was a surprise. And, you know, the, the guy I was inter- talking to said, well, I don't know why it's a surprise. It was on his social media page that he'd do it. So, I mean, it, you know, there's no surprise there. That's a little too tactical. What are, what are some of the keys to actually getting these broad arcs well, right. uh, I don't know if you mean uh, are, there, are there sources of collection you should look at or uh, understanding, and I'll, I'll take uh, the latter uh, as I think uh, as the point of your question. I think uh, just looking back on the Soviet Union example is, of course, understanding uh, the, the governance of the Soviet Union and also understanding things at the, at the street level and how to accurately marry those up. I think the, another question is whether we really had a, a, the understanding and insight that we needed on the Soviet economy, um, which of course they, you know, they hid a lot of. That's even for Russia or China or anybody today, it's, it's, it's uh, not as easy to hide uh, the true facts of the performance of the economy. Uh, we need to understand the demographics. Increasingly, demographics are becoming a very important, to me, strategic aspect uh, because this is a big factor in Russia where the population is declining. In the case of China, a, the growing uh, cohort of older citizens who are considered, and this is sensitive for me, are considered not productive. So you have a bigger bigger ratio of older people who don't work, don't produce for society, dependent on a ever smaller workforce. I think understanding the dynamics of things like that is is really important for uh, long-term outcomes and long-term insight into um, what's going to happen in any country. So kind of the basics, the economy, the demographics, and, and what's life like, life like on the street? Sir, thanks so very much for being so generous with your time. This is a terrific conversation. Enjoyed it very, very much. Uh, thanks so very much. Thank you very much for your lifetime of service to the nation and your uh, commitment to shape uh, generations uh, to follow uh, in, your, in your footsteps. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me and uh, enjoyed the discussion.